0: This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 75, part A. Hello, and welcome to the NegotiateX Podcast. I am your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. And with me, as always, co-host, co-founder, Aram Dunijin. Aram, you want to take it away from here?
1: I will. You're looking good today. And I only got some of that Miami Vice vibe going on, join Florida. Absolutely. We're going to go to the other coast today, and folks, it's my pleasure to welcome Kel Jensen, an internationally renowned negotiation expert, TEDx speaker, sought-after advisor, and award-winning author with a background primarily in management. And as former CEO of a publicly traded technology company, Keld works with governments and major corporations to achieve success through optimized negotiations. He is also an associate professor and teaches at top-ranked universities around the world, including the Thunderbird School of Global Management at ASU, the BMI Executive Institute in Lithuania, BMI Louvain University in Belgium, and Denmark's Aalborg University. Keld's expertise and extensive experience have earned him over 200 international TV appearances, regular contributions to Forbes magazine, and hundreds of published articles in major business publications in Europe, Asia, Pacific, and the United States. He is the founder and head of the Smartnership Negotiation Organization, a consulting and training organization that works with private industry and governmental bodies worldwide with clients that include Vestas, Novo Nordisk, J&J, Carlsberg Group, Siemens, Rolls-Royce, Lego, Bang & Olufsen, Mercedes, UCLA, UNICEF, PG&E, Thermo Fisher, World 50, and the governments of Canada, Denmark, and Great Britain. He is on the prestigious Global Gurus Top 30 and has received numerous awards for his work. His smartnesship approach is the world's most awarded negotiation strategy. He is a dual citizen of the United States and Denmark and resides in California. He has lived and worked in five countries. His latest book, Negotiation Essentials, is being published by McGraw-Hill and is already a best-selling book before the release. Kelb, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. That's a pretty amazing resume. I can't wait to get into all your expertise. I've got to ask, what drew you to the field of negotiation? And 30 years into this, what continues to inspire you to do the work that you're doing today? Well,
2: great question. I would say what drew me into it was I was unconsciously incompetent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't know I couldn't do it. Um, Let's take a step back. Uh, In the 90s, I was heading a technology company back in Scandinavia. And uh, it was a rather big company. And and being the head of the organization, I thought, as many CEOs do, I was a great negotiator. So I I was negotiating left and right and up and down and for millions and millions of dollars uh, with suppliers and clients and employees and staff and what have you. And as I said, I thought I was really good at it because obviously I was heading an, an organization. So naturally, I had to be good at negotiation. So what happened was that my former partner, who's actually established the organization I'm heading today back in 1976 in Stockholm, he was hired in my organization to come and help us on on negotiation. And um, I'm not exaggerating, in less than two hours, 120 minutes, he moved me from unconsciously incompetent into consciously incompetent. (laughs) Suddenly I realized that I knew nothing about negotiation. It was a very embarrassing moment. Uh, When you suddenly realize that what you think you're good at, you're actually miserable at. Now, it's actually nice being unconsciously incompetent, isn't it? Because you (laughs) think you you can do something, but in reality, (laughs) you can't. So it was a really rough awakening right there. So what happened, short version is I went back home to my wife and said, you know what, I'm changing careers right now. Because there's such a potential of changing the way we negotiate. And since then, basically, since 1998, to be exact, my mission in life has just been to improve the way we negotiate and make people aware that we can actually
1: improve our negotiation a lot. Do you ever get tired? Do you ever get weary of doing that? Or is it a passion that that continues to fuel you? That's a wonderful question. The passion is there. Once
2: in a while, I feel it takes an enormous amount of time to change people, how they perceive negotiation. I've been on this mission, as I said, since 1998. and, And the good news is I see signs of people changing. But, you know, changing, oh, it, it, we, we, we could just ask this question. Is it difficult to change people? Yes. You, you know, you have to start with yourself. Is it difficult changing yourself? Absolutely. And then when you're trying to change other people, it becomes pretty challenging. So the passion is absolutely 200% there because there's such a potential and we can do negotiations so much better than we're doing right now. But we really need to change the mindset of how we perceive negotiation in the absolute yes, step one.
0: Yeah, you mentioned several challenges, overcoming those challenges, overcoming just the sheer not knowing that you may be a bad negotiator. What was your greatest challenge that you had to overcome, and, and how can listeners who relate to your challenges take steps to improve as well?
2: Yeah. I think my first challenge was actually understanding that negotiation is a science. I was invited to speak at a business school in Europe just one week ago, and I accepted. I thought that was great. as a great opportunity to do that. And um, I was asking uh, the management of the school, the class, is that elective or is it, is it required? And they said, it's elective, and it's an executive MBA class. So I said, why is it elective? And they said, because the people, the students attending are very experienced executive. And I was thinking, oh, God, they, they got it so wrong, right? Because we have this misunderstanding that if somebody is an experienced executive, just back to my story, they are a great negotiators as well. And that is not the case. Uh, negotiation is a skill set. We need to learn and train, just like being a lawyer or a technician or army officer or what have you. It's not just something you do automatically. But for whatever reason, don't ask me why. A lot of executives, just like I did, believe that is something you can
1: just do automatically. And where that belief is coming from, I have no idea. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that leads into a, well, just teach me the tips and the tricks. And that's all I need because there, there is no science to this. And you push back on that. You have this um smartnership approach that you've developed. Don't want you to give away all the secret sauce, but could you share some of the key principles of this approach that you've um you've successfully launched globally. Well, first and foremost, I I would challenge what you just said just a tiny bit. I do
2: believe that negotiation is somewhat a science because you can sit down and study it. Now, some people call negotiation the art of negotiation. Some call it the science of negotiation. I would call it the science and art of negotiation. Because if it was purely an art, you could be born into being a great negotiator. You know, if you're a great artist, you have a natural skill set of just naturally you're a great painter, a great uh, singer, what have you. Can you excel that? Can you improve that? Of, Of course you can. But there's a science to negotiation as well. We have now been studying negotiation for so many years that we know the requirements, the basics, the checklist, what you have to know, what you have to prepare. And the second we have developed that rule and checklist and an order of doing stuff, we can actually put it on a recipe and call it somewhat a science. So I think there's a lot of science and knowledge within negotiations today. What you are asking, well, SmartNership is really just partnership version 2.0. We didn't call it that. We just named it SmartNership for several reasons. What partnership is all about, and the major difference between partnership and partnership is, I would rather explain why we came up with it, because I'm a true believer in collaborative negotiation. I'm not ruling out that we should never negotiate in a, in a more positional or serious some way. There's certain situations situation where we should. But in general, I believe we get more value out of collaborative negotiations. Now, having said that, we started partnership, and I've been working with so many clients when I'm asking them, what is your official approach to negotiation? They say, oh, it's partnership. We've been uh, doing partnership with our clients and partners and suppliers for years. And then when you dive in and look at the details, what they're really doing is this long-term series of negotiations. You know, they're just repeating positional negotiation over and over again with the same counterpart. But when they've been doing it for six years, they call it partnership. Right. But that's not a true partnership. That's something right. completely different. So first and foremost, I learned many, many years ago that people... I'm abusing the word partnership. They actually don't know what partnership in reality is. So we have to understand first and foremost, what is a positional negotiation what is a collaborative negotiation. The reason we added stuff to partnership and call this partnership is because we identified four things that separates the really great negotiator to the average or the lousy negotiator. And uh, just to list them very quickly, and it's not in any specific priority, but one of the things we learned very quickly was that the skilled, successful negotiator has an official negotiation strategy. We might have time to dive into a little bit what that is all about. But you need to have a negotiation strategy as an organization. And the fun part is that, you know, I love to tease people. So when I'm stepping into a new organization, I often ask the top executive, could you please have a look at your official negotiation strategy just for a moment? And the majority of organizations, you know, when I ask that question, they are quiet for about 10 minutes. And then some of them goes, ah, because they haven't got any. Most of them haven't got an efficient negotiation strategy. So that's step one. We need a negotiation strategy to be successful. Second one is what I call trust currency. And that's just the two words, trust and currency, are put together. And the reason for that is trust is a monetary value. Listen carefully. If we have a high level of trust in any kind of relationship, our transaction cost will go down and our profit will increase. All right. So that means if we're actually able to be transparent and work with trust, and it's not as easy as it sounds, both you and I will be more profitable in any commercial business deal. So trust is step two that separates partnership from a traditional partnership. Step three is rules of the game. And now I'm saying something I know sounds really awkward, but... You have to negotiate on how to negotiate before you start negotiating with your counterpart. And the reason for that is very simply, we perceive negotiation differently. So you might come into the conference room and think negotiation is like playing chess. And I may be coming into the negotiation room thinking, well, negotiation is like playing tennis, right? So I'm standing there with a racket, and you're sitting there moving your pieces on the gistboard around. It's going to be a really entertaining game, isn't it? Because you're playing a completely (laughs) different game than I am.
1: I love that imagery, by the way. (laughs) Sorry, Kel. That's beautiful imagery.
2: And the scary part is this is happening all the time. You know, as we talk right now, you are having uh, meetings out there where negotiators are doing exactly that. They're playing two different games. So we have to address before we start negotiating how we want to negotiate. So, Nolan, do you want to negotiate in a collaborative way or do you want to negotiate in a more positional-orientated way? Do you want to be transparent about your cost and values? Do you want to list your variables that we should negotiate? And on and on and on goes that list. And the final point that separates partnership from partnership, and I'm sorry about the long answer here, but... That's great. It's great. There's a lot of stuff in it. The last part is what we call Nacreconomics. and necroeconomics is an award-winning mathematical model I created that basically identifies the asymmetric value between you and I. It's negotiation economics. And it's very simple. It basically look at the difference between your cost and my value or my cost and your value. Quick example, if we're negotiating and one of the variables we're negotiating could be a terms of payment. Instead of just sitting there arguing back and forth and haggling where you say, well, I want a 30 days line of credit. And I say, we can't give you that. We can only give you 10. And then we're doing that. And then we end up in a compromise somehow. And, and I give you 20 days. Instead of wasting time doing that, which by the way, is not negotiation at all. I should be asking you, what's your cost of capital? And you might be answering, well, I'm happy to share that with you if you're willing to tell me what your cost of capital is. And I said, sure, I could do that. My cost of capital is 3%. What's yours? And then you said, well, my cost of capital is 7 Great, we just learned a lot. The one who has the lowest cost of capital should finance the deal. So I might be saying, do you know what? I'm, I'm happy to give you a longer line of credit than even the 30 days you're asking for because my cost of, of credit is lower than yours. But in return... I want a 6% price reduction or whatever we are talking about. So the concept of necroeconomics, we have hundreds of variables in every single negotiation where we can identify this asymmetric value. And we have actually identified that up to 42%, I repeat, 42% of the values in a negotiation are also not realized, capitalized, or identified. So I know a lot of negotiators who are saying, I hate numbers and I hate mathematics and I'm sorry to bring it out here, but you know, commercial <laughs> negotiation is about one thing. Value is about numbers. Otherwise, we are not negotiating. So, negotiators who are scared of numbers should not be negotiating on behalf of their
0: company. That's it. Absolutely. And I think that's a great point that you kind of talked about there. I was hoping to ask you, so how has the partnership approach helped your client avoid some of the common mistakes and challenges you see in business negotiations? What examples can you share?
2: Well, actually, just taking a step back to what I talked about, what we typically do when we are working with a client is that before we do anything else, we have to establish a negotiation strategy. Then you know the phrase that water runs downwards, right? So we have to start at the top. It doesn't help that we start working with procurement ourselves, a project or, or what have you, because they are only one brick in the wall. So we have to start at the top. So we have to implement a strategy. The organization has to embrace the philosophy and understanding how important negotiation is. When we have done that, then we can actually look at very concrete cases with the counterpart. And I would say, The main thing where we help the most is basically improving bottom line. And the great thing about negotiation is it's measurable. If you change something, it's just like in sports, right? I love watching sports because you can make small changes and immediately see an impact. In business life, it is harder to make a small change and immediately see an impact. But in negotiations, it is so easy to measure and improve how much more profitable you might be by changing a few tools and, you know, pull a handle. So when we work with a client, we're basically looking at a certain problem with a certain counterpart, and then we're implementing the tools to see how can we, for instance, increase the number of variables. It's a very simple technique, a very simple tool I would love to share with everybody. Most of our listeners right now are negotiating on too few variables. And obviously that's provoking, I'm saying that because I don't know our listeners, but... It's just a general fact. Most negotiators are negotiating on too few variables. They're negotiating on the typical usual suspect, right? Delivery time, price, warranty, right of return, blah, 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 what have you. Seven, eight, nine, ten commercial variables. And I know a lot of people will be shocked right now when I tell them there might be 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 variables that you need to negotiate on. And if you're able to expand that pizza, you know, and just start talking about more variables, you can also generate more profit. So Again, we, we could talk about just this question for hours and hours and hours, but typically what we're doing is that we're sitting now with the client identifying what other variables should you negotiate on. And then back to my thing about uh, how to engage into negotiation, then we have to reach out to the counterpart, the supplier or the client and say, how do you want to negotiate? We're going to meet Thursday next week. Do you want to do the positional game that we've been doing for years? Or do you want to try and spice it up and actually make some more money? because we are here to help you reduce your cost and your liability, and we expect you to arrive at the table helping us reducing our cost and, and our liability. That was a very long answer to your question. I don't even know if you got an answer to, to your question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's fair. So basically trying to still pull out the cooperative approach to what may have been traditional haggling over prices or anything like that, like typical positional type bargaining. So it sounds like the smartership approach Basically helps us avoid that. Is that an accurate summary?
2: The short answer is yes. The long answer requires a little bit more. I'll try to do it very short. When we're talking smartness, we are majority of the time in a collaborative mode. But you could have periods during that negotiation where you have zero-sum negotiations as well. What we often say is that you have to collaborate to create value. But when you try to distribute the value, you could end up in zero-sum again. So I'm not naive, I'm not saying everything should just be collaboration, that we should just be sitting there and agreeing on everything. Sure. End of the day, the reason we are negotiating is to improve our bottom line, is to create more value. Sure. And I truly believe it's possible, because I know it is, that you can make an additional $100 without I'm paying for it. But I'm not ruling out that zero sum is not happening in smartness it could be happening in certain windows, all pockets of that
1: negotiation, which is fine, by the way. If we could take, again, going back to your first step, which is this official negotiation strategy, and in your answer to Nolan, you just mentioned the organization has to realize how important negotiation is. Can we talk about that for a moment, about the difference between negotiating, and even negotiating well, and negotiating when you have a clear corporate strategy strategy? Uh, behind you or whatever. How do you advise? How do you help clients actually get that strategy built? Yeah, that's a great
2: question. It's a three-month project. We have it pinned down in nine steps. And um, the first step is, as I said, developing the idea and the understanding at the C-suite that they need it. Typically, they have realized already that they can improve our negotiation. That's why they're coming to us. Otherwise, it is really difficult. I mean, I gave up years and years ago trying to convince somebody they have a need if if they don't understand that themselves, back to being unconsciously incompetent. But if they realize already they have a need and they believe they can improve their negotiation, which the majority of organizations, government in the world can, then we're starting off simply by identifying what I call negotiation champions in the organization. And negotiation champions, one, the ones that like and love negotiation. And I'm getting back to that in a second, why that is important. And secondly, it's the one that shows a skill in negotiation. Typically, we're running a workshop or we do evaluation of the competence level of negotiation. We have a tool where we can actually measure whether people are qualified, less qualified, and not qualified to head a negotiation team. Why am I saying it's important that people like or love negotiation? Well, that's based on a study we did where we actually identified that 20% of all professional negotiators are really incompetent in the world of negotiation. They shouldn't be negotiating. They shouldn't be heading a negotiation team. It's actually a scary big number. Think about it, guys, right now. If if we're right, one out of five professional negotiators out there sitting negotiating right now shouldn't be negotiating at all because they're not good at it. Now, the big question is, why is that? And let, let me just share something very quickly. It's not because they're lacking intelligence. It's not because they don't have the education. Do you know why? It's because they dislike negotiation. They really don't like it. And I think we can all agree that you and I as human beings, we are better at something we truly like and enjoy. Is not that true? If we hate doing something, we're never really going to be good at it. So one little question I'm always asking my client before we step into negotiation is that, Nolan, are you looking forward to our negotiation on Thursday? And if Nolan says not really, I would rather sit here in the office and do my spreadsheet and look at the screen. Then I'm normally putting down a note in my notebook saying this is not going to be as good as it could be. On the other hand, back to the same question, if no one says, yes, that's going to be great, because I just, oh, it's so boring just sitting and looking at a screen. I love getting out there and boxing with a counterpart and trying to figure out some values and stuff. If that's the reply I'm getting, then I'm normally putting down a little note saying, this is actually going to be quite successful. And the funny part is, I'm often right, because if we really like to negotiate, we're just better at it. And if we dislike it, well, it's not going to be really good. Now, we can all have one or two negotiations every year where we're thinking, shoot, that wasn't good. But in general, it should be a fun experience. It should be something that is exciting. And you would actually be surprised, guys, how often I meet people who, when they're honest, are telling me, I actually don't like to negotiate because I think it's very confrontational and it's unpleasant and blah, blah, blah. And that's back to how we perceive negotiation. And by the way, how Hollywood is often uh, trying to create a picture of what negotiation is all about. or All the macho guys out there trying to explain to us that what negotiation could be or should be. And by the way, it is not. So. Uh, Yeah, Any good Hollywood movies that actually demonstrate a smartnesship approach? (laughs) That's an excellent question. I never had that question before. I I have a long list of movies that doesn't. Having one that really shows smartnesship,
1: I have to think about that. I don't have one right here. If not, that's something for you to work on in the next 30 years of your professional career. (laughs) We,
0: We need it. So Kel, building upon your last answer, what role does preparation play in helping guide a negotiation where the counterpart to the party you're assisting is particularly challenging, perhaps even using dirty tricks or tactics, and how are you able to help your client still achieve a successful outcome?
2: Well, I think it can goes without saying you guys are professional in the world of negotiation as well. I, I think we can all agree, regardless what religion in negotiation we believe in, that, that preparation is king, isn't it? I mean, not preparing is the same as preparing for complete failure. I'm a big fan of checklist. And the reason is that, you know, we, we can train and practice and read about preparation. And then we step into a negotiation and forget 75% of everything because the stress is there. The counterpart is there. We get a, a surprising information, what have you. What I quite often tell my client is that, you know, uh, when you bought a plane, when you bought a flight, right, the, if the door to the flight deck is open, you often see the pilot sitting out there with the checklist. And I'm often asking my clients who is not prioritizing to prepare well, I'm often asking them, do you think the pilot sitting out there with the checklist because this is the first time he's going to fly this Airbus 350? Do you think he's sitting out there desperately with a checklist thinking, what the shoot is this button on about? When, when should I push this thing? You know, I don't think that that's the reason he's sitting with the checklist. He might have been flying this Airbus 350 2,000 times before, but he's still sitting with this checklist. And do you know why? Because he knows that he will forget stuff if we don't have a checklist. So if a pilot is sitting out there with a checklist, we should probably work with the checklist as well, shouldn't we? And a checklist should be obviously very simple. We have lots and lots of them for different purposes and different occasions. And in our world, the checklist is basically two pages that is uh, kind of gathering the information that is required, both uh, prior, during, and post-negotiation. So, for instance, my new book, Negotiation Essential, is sharing some of these very vital checklists, what it is as a minimum that you have to plan. Now, um, back to your question, If, if what I call smoke and mirrors, if, if people are trying to uh, deceive you, if people are trying to lie or cheat you. Now, one thing I want to say is that I see too many of my colleagues who is obsessed with tools and techniques to um, read the counterpart, manipulate the counterpart, identify the liar and figuring out whether they're telling the truth and how can we convince them and how can we make a shortcut into convincing the counterpart. Let me just take a step back and say, why do we have all that smoke and mirrors in negotiation? What if negotiation was just between two human beings that actually wanted to make two plus two create more than four? What if negotiations were just between two people who talked about how they want to negotiate? They agreed that transparency and openness and just being Nolan and Keld would be way better and would actually achieve more result and save a lot of time instead of playing all these games. I'm not saying that is possible all the time. I'm just saying there's a big difference um, whether we are sitting in a commercial negotiation where two parties are trying to generate value and not at the expense of each other Always sitting in a hostage negotiation where you can't create a value because it's basically a question about one is going to win at the expense of the counterpart. That's two different negotiations. So when I meet negotiation advisors and trainers who spend most of their time trying to educate people on how they can build up the toolbox of all of these techniques and tools to manipulate or read or whatever you call it, the counterpart, I'm thinking... This is a sad world. If that's what we're preparing our corporate negotiators to do, it's basically uphill because that is a step back. So back to what I said, why don't you just openly talk about what a negotiation is? We have what we call a code of conduct in negotiation that we ask our client to present to the counterpart. And for instance, that code of conduct is in the new book as well, by the way, is actually stated, we will not bluff. We will not lie. We will be transparent. And if you feel that we are not open and honest and transparent, please tell us. And we expect the same of you. So it's about changing, again, back to what I said, changing how we perceive negotiation. I can only repeat what I just said. A commercial negotiation is 100% different to a hostage negotiation. It's two different worlds. And if you call me, Nolan, right now and said, we have a hostage thing going on across the street. Could you come and help us? You are an an acknowledged negotiation expert. I would say, I would have no clue. I don't know how to deal with, with
1: any hostage negotiation. It's not my field. So it's two completely different worlds. You talked about kind of establishing rules of the game up front. Is that connected to this idea of a, a presenting a code of conduct and say, hey, here's the game we're playing. Okay, we're not playing Austin negotiation situation. This is what we're doing. Is, that, is this part of it? Dealing with difficult tactics is, is how you kind of lay the foundation early? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The scary part is it's obviously
2: not always working. I had a case. I was sitting in Europe with a client in the construction industry. And we were establishing, creating this whole strategy for the business. And the construction industry is especially interesting, both in North America and Europe, because, you know, profits are very low. They have an incredible, huge turnover, but the revenue, the profit is very low, typically in that industry. So we have a major construction company in Europe who want to change that. They're only doing two and a half, three percent profit bottom line. And when your turnover is millions and millions and hundreds of millions of, of euros, it's actually a tiny profit line. So they said, Hey, how can we change that? We want double our bottom line. So they came to us and said, Could you help us up creating this strategy? And part of our strategy is actually reaching out and doing a pilot project with one supplier and one client. So we did that. We went to one client, a major Swedish company who were a major client to, to our client. And um, we sat down for three hours and we're talking about rules of the game, how we want to negotiate in the future, the list of variables. We wanted to be transparent about cost, blah, 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 all that. And the Swedish company embraced the whole idea said, wonderful, we'd love to do it, we want to do it. And they accepted and even signed the code of conduct. They went to a German company that was actually on the supply side. And typically, the supplier is more willing, typically, to go into this uh, game because the supplier has more to win. And obviously they want to maintain a good relationship to the client. But the German supplier, when completed the opposite way, they actually thought there was a hidden agenda. Typically, I find that the suppliers are more happy than the clients to embrace the idea of smartness because You know they can benefit from it. But this was a German supplier and they went the complete opposite direction because they actually thought there was an agenda where they start arguing saying well why should we do this right now because we've been working together for years and years and it's been going perfectly but we can reduce the price so they actually didn't get the concept at all. So what I'm trying to say is that it's it's really important introducing the idea and back to your question it's really important to identify and part of rules of the game introduce how we want to negotiate. And code of conduct is part of that already at step one. So we agree that, you know what, we have to be trying to be honest and transparent. And it's very important actually to verbalize what trust is as well. Some people come to me and said, we can't talk about trust. You know, it's like a taboo, but sure you can. And, and you should. You should actually be talking about trust. So what happens if trust declines? How can we work together to increase trust? So the trust, the trust factor should be on the agenda.
0: Hey, everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and in today's podcast for part A of the show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio